This morning we return to our series in the book of 1 John, so if you turn there, it would be greatly appreciated. A series we've entitled, That You May Know. And if you would, make your way to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Within this verse, John gives us the specific reason in which he is writing this letter to us. He states, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John, when he wrote the Gospel of John, ended the Gospel by writing that he wrote the Gospel so that you would believe that Jesus is truly the Son of God. Now he is writing his first letter, his follow-up to that gospel, and he's writing it with the purpose of allowing you to know for certain that you have eternal life. He wants you to be clear of of that. He, He wants you to know for sure that you are saved and will one day enter into the presence of Christ. During the time of John, within the first century, there were already great difficulties that the church, the early church, was facing in the way of false teaching. They didn't even have a moment of breathe. There wasn't even truly a honeymoon period per se. Difficulties arose right away. And one of those difficulties came in the form of a teaching that denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. They could not argue the fact that Christ came because most of them at this time had lived during his lifetime. But they were arguing concerning his nature, his being. And in their culture, they did not struggle with the idea that Christ could um, house a deity, meaning that he could be God. They didn't struggle with that. They struggle with the notion that he could be God and man at the same time. So they denied the humanity of Christ, which is the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. As a Christian, we believe the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ came and he was 100% man and 100% God from the time of his birth to the moment that he gave up the Spirit. They refuted that, and they said, no, we have no problem with him being a deity, but we have great problems with him being human. So they believe that either he was a phantom and never took on human flesh, or that before he actually died, the Christ spirit was released from him, And therefore, it was just the humanity portion of him that died, and the uh, divine portion of him lived for eternity. Doceticism is the technical term for that. Big word on a Sunday morning before your coffee, but great with Scrabble if you get triple letter score. It's a theological term that denies the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now, today, we have just the opposite argument within the church constantly in the form of Arianism, where we are constantly 
refuting the idea that Jesus was merely a man but never God. We hold to the fact that he was God. He claimed to be God. He proved that he was God. And God the Father uh, demonstrated that authenticity by the resurrection. That being said, today we argue for the divinity of Jesus Christ, and they were arguing for the humanity of Jesus Christ back at that time. Oh, times have changed. This is important for you to know to understand what John is about to write us this morning. Again, all of this is being written that we may know that we have eternal life. And woven throughout his first letter are three examples for us to compare ourselves by to know that we are truly in Christ. The first of those examples is a moral example, a moral test, if you will. That those who are truly in Christ, who are truly saved, will live as Christ lived, in a holiness and a reverence to the will of God the Father. We are going to be conscientious in the manner in which we conduct ourselves as Christians. We are not saved by these things, but we are demonstrating that we are saved by living in this manner. We are saved by faith and faith alone, but John's argument through the letter is that one who is truly saved will emulate the holiness of Christ in their life. The second of these tests are found in a, uh, a social test, if, it w- if you will. That is, do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ in the manner in which God has asked us to love them? And within the first two examples, John is paralleling for us the idea of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is the moral quality. We love him so much that we desire to live like he would have us to live. And then loving your neighbor as yourself is the second premise. And now he's asking, do you love the brethren as Christ would have you love one another? And then the third of these tests is a theological test. So if we live like Jesus, if we love like Jesus, thirdly, let us think like Jesus theologically. We are going to have and gravitate towards a proper understanding of who God is. And as it has been said, and I think uh, very well said, that any theology that distorts the character of God can be considered heresy. Because it is the true understanding of God that we try to grasp within the theological parameters in which we hold to. Today we find ourselves in a portion of the letter where the theological test is being put forward to us. And John raises a concern in his day that I would certainly say echoes a concern that I have today. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, John is going to ask us and demonstrate to us that we be a discerning people, a discerning church, and in so doing, we will demonstrate that we are truly in Christ. Christians who are truly in Christ will be discerning people. 
Every so often you will find or attend maybe a leadership conference, a pastor's conference, and often these conferences within some portion of the event will host a panel discussion. And during that panel discussion, the question inevitably arises, what is one of the great deficiencies in the church today? And as time has gone on, I'm happy to hear now more and more that this issue of discernment is coming up more and more. The church in America must be a discerning church. You, as an individual Christian, must be a discerning individual as a Christian. Being able to tell right from wrong, truth from error, God from Satan. This is what would distinguish you as a true follower of Jesus Christ, being a discerning Christian. Over the last two decades, we have continuously seen a further biblical illiteracy grip the hearts and minds of the Christian community here in America. And it's not due to lack of resources. It's not due to the lack of teaching that is out there. It is due to a lack of the fact of what a Christian comes to church for initially. If a, church, if a Christian comes to church just to have some type of emotional experience to believe that they have interacted with God in that emotionalism, then we can see how doctrine and biblical theology might be put to the, to, to the side. If Christians are coming to the church because they simply want a, um, a, a, a you know, felt need met, then their pursuit of theology and understanding of God may be put on the back burner. And in one case after another, we find that the Christians coming to church for any other reason than to be equipped by the teaching of the Word of God leaves them in a place of deficiency and leads to ultimately a place of biblical illiteracy. And in the lack of that education, one of the consequences of that is a lack of discernment within the body of Christ. They go hand in hand. And if we are going to have deficiency in biblical literacy, then we're going to have a deficiency when it comes to personal Christian discernment. So the title of my message this morning, as you can possibly uh, guess, is the need for discernment today. Let us begin with a quote by the great educator Samuel Johnson, who stated, The supreme end of education is expert discernment in all things. The power to tell the good from the bad, the genuine from the counterfeit. Now, it doesn't end there. Notice what he then furthers the conclusion to. And to prefer the good and the genuine to the bad and the counterfeit. It's not only the ability to reason and to see the falsehood, the error, the deception, but to move to the truth, to the righteous, to the godly. He was so true in saying that, that it's a twofold discovery, this discernment. And in his mind, as a great Christian educator, he saw that the end goal of education was a 
true discernment, and as he wrote it, in all things. In all things. But what does it mean to be discerning? If you go to the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, it simply says the quality of being able to grasp and comprehend what is obscure. But I like the way the biblical definition of discernment is handled and is rendered. To have the capacity to perceive clearly and hence to understand the real nature of something. To be able to perceive and to have the capacity to understand. That is biblical discernment. Having the capacity to perceive and to understand what is being presented. So the question then comes, as before we enter into our text this morning, is how discernment is created or developed within the individual. And the Bible tells us that there are two clear manners in which this is done. Number one, through the Word of God itself and the teaching of the Word of God, discernment will be instilled in the recipient. And number two, a spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit to discern what manner of spirit you are facing. As the Word tells us in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, about this we have much to say, as Paul, I believe, writes, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers, but yet you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There is a direct link to biblical, from biblical literacy to a lack of discernment, just as there is a direct link from a mature, healthy diet of the Word of God and a decent ability to discern good from evil. That's the argument Paul is making here. And that is why I believe that it is so important that we never dumb down the Scriptures in any way, shape, or form. I always come here on Sundays or on Wednesdays with the full belief that whatever the Word of God teaches, anyone here in this church who is uh, saved and has the Spirit of God residing in them can understand it fully and apply it within to their lives. I never think to myself, well, we're getting to this very difficult portion of Scripture. They're never going to be able to handle it. In fact, let's just go back to the coloring books. We never consider that when we come and we give you the word each and every Sunday and each and every Wednesday. We want you to be able to discern right from wrong by a healthy diet of the word of God. As you see that Paul writes here that a mature Christian sees it as solid food, the Word of God. And of course, you know, it is easy to go to a buffet, especially as an adult when you're no longer under a parental supervision. 
and, you know, hit the dessert counter from the very beginning of the whole event. I can do so because I am now an adult and I am no longer under my parents' care and I can go right to the dessert counter and I can just camp out there if I so see it fit. And I'm going to be fat and happy, but I'm not going to be very healthy. But when you finally realize that you can't stay there forever, you then move to the more healthy foods, even if it's something you don't like. I don't know who the first person who ever ate an artichoke was, but they were one of the bravest people I've ever known. Do you ever wonder about that when you're about to eat something? Who was the first person who said this might be edible? And how many of those people are no longer with us today? (laughs) You ever wonder about that? But you understand there's a nutritional value and your body needs the nutrition from things that, you know, only rabbits eat and uh, so forth. And, you know, that's why as Christians, we need the whole word of God, not just the portions that make us feel comfortable or uh, tantalize us or excite our intellect. We need the whole counsel of God. But there's also a second manner in which one may be given the ability to discern, and that's found in 1 Corinthians 12.10. And to another, the working of miracles, as Paul now is laying out for us, the different gifts, the Spirit Spirit of God gifts. And by the way, Calvary Chapel, we believe the spiritual gifts are still active in the church today. Uh, To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And... The, to another, the interpretation of tongues. So that one in the middle there, to, the, uh, to another, the ability to, to distinguish spirits is the gift of discernment. Understanding the spirits behind what is being said. Now, both John and Paul are telling us that our discernment is not just an intellectual agreement with what is being said or disagreeing with what is being said. It is the understanding of the spirit in which it is being said and that spirit where it originates. Now this takes us to a whole deeper level altogether. Let us understand when it comes to the things of the uh, things of God, there is the Word of God that gives us the authentic theology and understanding of God in the spiritual world. And then there is the false, the antithesis of that. It is the opposite of, that is derived from the ruler of this world, the, the ruler of um, this uh, fallen creation, Satan himself. And throughout the New Testament epistles, we discover that false teaching doesn't originate with the false teacher. It originates from the spiritual world behind the false teacher, and that false teacher is just an instrument within their hands. This is why we will see that John says, though we have anticipated the arrival of the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist is already here at work, denying the true authenticity of the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. So as a result, let us understand that when it comes to this realm in which we are engaged in this morning, it is a spiritual realm. And in it is truth, light, 
and life or error, darkness, and death. So as we move, let us understand that it is the spirits behind what is being said that John wants to draw to our attention this morning. Verse 1 of chapter 4, if you read with me. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, uh, confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, but we know the spirit of truth. And by this, I'm sorry, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In the Roman, in the Greco-Roman world, there was this great fascination at the time of Christ's coming and shortly thereafter of spirits speaking through people in the form of divination and revealing the mysteries of the spiritual world. And there were countless cultic groups at that time that were claiming to have the real, authentic uh, understanding of the spiritual world and the salvation of the individual and so forth. And at the time John wrote this, there was emerging there on the scene a group who embraced Jesus, but not his full nature and character. They embraced the idea that he was deity, but completely rejected the idea of his humanity. And as a result, they uh, exalted themselves amongst the culture, and they claimed to have this divine, high revelation of God that could be found through no other. And in the course of their writings, you will discover that they actually belittle the uh, apostles, themselves by being uh, uneducated uh, fishermen. Uh, who are they? They only had one perspective of Jesus, but now we have the full perspective of Jesus. And it is only through us that the true manner of salvation can be uh, learned and discovered and obtained. This group eventually became the Gnostic movement that uh, took its roots and plagued the early church in the first two centuries. It's amazing how much was written to uh, counter the Gnostic thinking. It, it was a true uh, uh, rival for biblical, or I should say theological authority. Many of the creeds that Christians read today, be it the Apostolic Creed or the Nicene Creed or whatever creed it may be, you might have heard of creedal statements that churches hold to. 
Many of them were birthed out of the necessity of the uh, clarification of a doctrinal uh, understanding of God himself. The Nicene Creed uh, argued against Arianism, that Jesus Christ was not God. It had changed at that point, and that was one of the key components of the Nicene Creed. Or the Apostolic Creed, um, which uh, really summarized the position of the uh, apostles at that time, and it was an easy manner in which um, those who came after the apostles could learn and then pass on to others. But these creeds were often created to counter some of the false teaching that had come in. Christians would get together and say, okay, we're being challenged on this theological point. What does God actually say in his word? And that's the way these creeds are created. The reason I bring this to your attention is that I believe that John quotes a creed here that was established back then. And he reminds them of the incarnation of Christ within it. But let us begin by looking at three imperative words that John uses in these six verses. And around these three words, we'll conduct our time together this morning. An imperative word is a word that is in the Greek that is used as a command. And the first one is the word believe in verse 1. And here it is in the negative sense, do not believe. Throughout the Bible, we're told to believe, but now we're told not to believe. The second of these words is the word test. It means to scrutinize. It means to critically um, analyze what is being said before you. And lastly, in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. So, our first command is not to believe everything. Our second command is to test everything. And our third command is to know who God truly is. And based upon these three imperative words, we will walk through these six verses this morning. Beloved, he's writing to believers, Christians in whom he loves dearly. Now, do not believe every spirit. Again, the the realization was that what was being taught did not originate with that individual, but had a spiritual origin behind that individual and was just being furthered through him or her. Paul and John says, now don't believe everything. Do not believe everything. Again, at that culture that they were absolutely um, obsessed with individuals speaking on spiritual uh, entities' behalf. And now he's saying, now wait a minute. Let us scrutinize here. Even though something miraculous appears to be happening before you, do not automatically embrace or believe what they are saying. Now, he goes on to say, but test them scrutinize what they are saying to you. Uh, Evaluate it with what you know to be true. To see if it is authentic and truly of God, or if it is not. And the reason this is necessary, as he goes on to state, test the spirits to to see whether they are from God for the purpose many false prophets have gone out into the world. The term gone out is an interesting 
phrase in the Greek, gone out among us. It's meaning that the individuals, these false prophets, were once part of the group that identified themselves as Christians. And they had gone out and they embraced this cultic understanding of God and now were uh, tantalizing other Christians in the, in the uh, body of Christ to follow them into this error. And John says, I understand that they have gone out from amongst us and they are in the world today. But understand that just because they speak of spiritual things does not mean that they automatically speak on the behalf of God. That's what he's saying here. But test to see what they are saying, if it is truly of God or not. Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. He says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul is identifying that what is being stated and said and embraced by the individual has a spiritual origin behind it. He went on to write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. This is a harsh warning for us. This would, I believe, cause, at least within myself, the understanding that not everything that I hear under the umbrella of Christianity may be authentic. And that I need to be diligent in my discernment to be able to discern right from wrong, truth from error, etc. As one pastor wrote, he said, John warned against believing every spirit. That is, we are never to assume every spiritual experience or every demonstration of spiritual power is from God. We must test spiritual experiences and spiritual phenomena to see if they are in fact from God. Okay, so now our mandate has risen. We need to be diligent. We need to be discerning Christians. Why? Because false prophets have gone out into this world. And today we are plagued by false prophets today and false teachers today just as they were back then. We must be aware of this. And we must be diligent to discern what is truly of the Spirit of God and what is not. He he admonishes us to test these things, to scrutinize them, to critically evaluate them against the Word of God. If they are truly of God, they're going to attest to a proper understanding of God. I would encourage you as you interact with people and they claim to be Christians or believers in God to push this subject a little bit and say, oh, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about God? And get an understanding of where they're coming from before you just automatically 
conclude that they are speaking of the same God and the same Jesus you are. For example, I may run into a fellow who's part of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he says, yes, he believes in Jesus. And I say, great, so do I, but are we actually talking about the same Jesus? Or someone within the Mormon church. And they say they believe in Jesus. And I say, great, so do I. But am I talking about the same Jesus? Absolutely not. And as a result, they have created for themselves a uh, distorted understanding of Jesus and a Jesus that ultimately is incapable of saving anyone. The danger about false teaching is that false teaching leads to false conclusions that lead to false expectations that are placed upon God. Let me say that again. False teaching leads to false conclusions that ultimately lead to false expectations that are placed upon God. And then when God does not fulfill those expectations, as a result, they feel that God has left them down, And therefore, God is unfaithful to those things that they expected him to provide or to perform. And you can see how devastating that would be to certain individuals. For example, one of my great pet peeves is in the hyper-Pentecostal movement, the name-it-and-claim-it community, the, you know... um, health, wealth, and prosperity environment. When individuals come forward who apparently come forward because they desire to be healed of whatever ails them and they are then not healed, the individual doing the healing has the audacity to say that it's really, it's not me, it's you. You know, I've got the gift of healing, but obviously you don't have the gift of faith. Really. And as a result, that individual then is placed in a position before God of disparity. Now, faith is part of our mandate as Christians, but in that context, it is being interpreted in an ill manner. So do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into this world. And then he gives us a litmus test by which we may discern these spirits. Verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2, I believe is where John quotes a creed that was circling at that time. I don't know if the creed even had been identified. It is just something the apostles appear to repeat over and over again. And they did so to remind people that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that his manifestation, his incarnation, including, included 100% deity and 100% humanity, both at the same time. 
But now he's saying, use this as a litmus test going forward to identify those who are true and of God and those who are not. If they deny that Jesus has come, now the King James, New King James, adds a phrase there uh, in the negative sense. Um, uh, He says, if it it has not come in the flesh, uh, the newer translations remove that last portion. Uh, because uh, it, I believe it was a scribal in, in searching uh, in the 12th century. But that being said, he is asking the question, do they believe that Jesus Christ has indeed come in body, in the flesh, and has died, born and was crucified as that complete incarnation? That's what he's saying here. Long explanation. Now ask them, they say. And if they deny it, then you know they are not from God. If they embrace it, then they are from God. This isn't the only time this kind of instruction is given to us. For Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the other ones weigh what is said. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. But verse 21, of course, but test everything. And how can we know that? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, uh, for the training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In Acts, we have an actual example of this where a group of people, after listening to Paul the Apostle himself, decided to go back to the scriptures in which they had to ascertain if everything that Paul taught them was accurate or not. In Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, you can read it on your own. A group of people called the Bereans, when they were taught by Paul, after being taught by him, went back and, and uh, scrutinized what he said. They read it for themselves. They looked at it for themselves to make sure they were being taught properly and correctly. They took the personal responsibility that was required of them to make sure that what they were teaching was accurate. I'll read that portion of Scripture for you. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if the things were so or if they were correct. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And Paul commends them for this. Go back, check it out for yourself to make sure that what you are being taught is accurate. And I don't care where it is. I don't care if it's on television, on the internet. Well, the internet, everything's true. So you you can be (laughs) confident of that. The radio, and this next one might surprise you, even here. Go back and look at the scriptures for yourself. Why? Because of the third imperative that John gives us. 
we are to do this to know the Spirit of God. That's the purpose that we come to a right knowing of who God is and that is why we are doing this. It's not simply confined to the identity of those who are right and wrong. It is that we may know the one who is right, God himself. So it is not limited just to our scenario, but to the overall meta-narrative stating that this is the God in whom you know and belong to And he wants you to know him and love him as thoroughly as possible. And then we have this exhortation in verse 4. As the spirit of Antichrist is already moving, John says even in our day, this has already taken hold, and even though we anticipate one day the reveal of the personification of pure evil, pure deception, the Antichrist himself, the spirit of the denial of the true Christ is already at work in this world. Why? Because the same spirit that's going to empower the Antichrist in the last days, Satan himself, is the same spirit who's empowering the false teachers of today. It's already at work around us. And that might frighten you. That might trouble you. Well, who am I now in this great uh, scheme of things? How am I going to know truth from error, right from wrong, God from Satan? Holy cow, it's just like all of a sudden I fell into the uh, battle of the Lord of the Rings or something. And what, what am I into now? What is happening? So John wants to encourage you with these words. He says, little children... You are from God. And as a result of being from God, he then goes on to say, and have overcome them. That word them includes the false teachers, the false teaching, and the spirit behind it all. You have overcome them because he who is in you, that is Christ, the spirit of God, God the Father, is greater. We do this in youth group to help understand the Greek, uh, under, you know, the Greek uh, intensity of the words here. Uh, this word greater that we find here in verse 4, if I was teaching the youth group right now, I'd say, you are greater! Okay? That's the intensity of it. It's not that you're just a little bit better. Just over the line. You're way greater! than he was in the world. I don't know if that helped you at all or if I just scared you even more. <laughs> now, I'm never sending my kid to youth group again. But he is greater than he who is in the world. And John fully means Satan, the ruler of this world, who is in you, the Spirit of God. Christ himself is so much greater than he who is in the world. Verse 5. They, those individuals who have left and departed, those individuals that are spouting these things of error, these false teachers, they are from the world, John says. And therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. Do we all understand 
that the world at large is not going to agree with true, authentic, biblical teaching. They are going to disagree with it adamantly. They are going to oppose it vehemently. Because the spirit of this world and Christ God himself are complete opposites in and of themselves. And as a result, we have this antagonism amongst us. So we cannot look to popularity as the confirmation of truth. Please hear me when I say this. We cannot look to popularity as the confirmation of truth. We cannot do that. The Bible speaks considerably to those holding the truth being the remnant of the society, a small portion thereof. And of course, I'm not advocating for a moment that we are the only church. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that let us understand, if the world disagrees with us, it's probably because we're right in God. If I went downtown today, and I opposed the pride that was being displayed, do you think I would be heralded as a, oh, wow, what a godly man. Praise God for him. Or would I be ridiculed? Would I be belittled? Would they attempt in every manner of society to silence me? Of course they would. As they have adopted a rainbow because they believe that it symbolizes that God will never judge again. No, my friends, God will never judge by flood again. But He is going to judge again. And He will hold individuals accountable. The world is not going to love what we say, as William MacDonald wrote. I love the way he wrote this. This reminds us that the approval of the world is not a test as to the truthfulness of one's teaching. If a man simply wants to be popular, all he needs to do is speak as the world speaks. But if he is to be faithful to God, then he must face the disapproval of the world. Why? 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tell us that this world has been blinded by the ruler of this world. And he has blinded their minds of the unbelievers. And only God can break through that blindness and give them sight that they may see. So he's encouraging us to know that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, even though the world itself is coming against you and you are of the minority and you are not um, uh, in the populace and you are out of favor with the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And they are not going to listen to you because... The world listens to the world. Verse 6. We are from God, John writes. And whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. One of the characteristics of authenticity as a believer in Jesus Christ, is that that individual is going to desire the things of God. 
I get very leery when I'm hearing an individual who claims to be a Christian, who had some, some experience at some time, but has no um, heart for the things of God. They have no desire to pray. They have no desire to be amongst fellowship. They have no desire to be in the word of God. They have no desire to be at church serving their brothers and sisters. I get very concerned at that moment because one of the initial traits of the new birth as a a, a child longing for his, his mother, as a child of God, the very first things that we should see within us is this desire for the things of God. I, when I got saved, I, you know, you couldn't get me near a church and then I got saved and you couldn't get me out of a church. I went to every study that was possible, including the women's study. I didn't care. I just wanted fellowship. You know? I couldn't get enough prayer meeting. I'm there. Um, fellowship, I'm there. I don't even know what fellowship is, but I'm there. It didn't matter. I just wanted to be about God's people, God's things. And if they were talking about the word, if they were praying, if they were serving one another, I just wanted to be part of it. I didn't know why. I just did. And that's what John's saying here. That those who are truly of us, they are going to listen to us. And Paul says the same thing. He says, anyone who disagrees with what I am writing, let them examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. You're going to desire the things of God. You're going to desire prayer, the word of God, and so forth. And being around God's people, that is what he is saying here. And out of this, discernment will be born. Charles Stanley wrote this, and I wanted to show it to you. He says, disturbance develops as we stay focused on God. Our ability to discern develops as we, number one, stay in the word of God on a daily basis, number one. Number two, stay sensitive to what is happening around us and to those we encounter who may be in need. God wants us to be sensitive to our surroundings. And number three, stay submitted to God's commandments and to the daily direction of the Holy Spirit. To allow that sensitivity to develop in you, let me encourage you to be a man or woman of prayer. I can't stress that enough. Before you read the word of God, pray and and seek the Lord. Then spend some time in the Word, reading it and learning it for yourself. And then spend some time in prayer as you're coming out of that time with the Lord in the Word. And ask the Lord to create that sensitivity to you in your heart towards the Holy Spirit. And allow Him to move you as He so fits. That can happen at the most odd times of your life. I remember being at Aldi just last year. And as I was getting my things together, and you know, it's just chaos checking out at Aldi. You just dump everything on the conveyor and there's no order to it. And then they throw it all into a cart anyway. So there's no order to it there and so forth. And as I was in the line waiting, I just felt that the spirit was going to give me an opportunity to talk to somebody. I'm like, well, great, you know, I mean, I can pack the eggs and preach the gospel, no problem. 
And as I was waiting my turn, there was a lady in front of me who had her groceries all, you know, checked out and they were in the cart ready for her to be, uh, ready to be bagged by her. And she was going to pay. And her debit card was declined two, three times. And she, you know, an older lady um, said, oh no, I, I said, she goes, the bank must not have gotten my well, uh, my check yet, you know, from my social security check yet. And oh no, and I don't know what to do. I, I'll, I'll just put everything back you know, that I've taken because I didn't mean this. I thought it was clear enough where everything was okay. And so right then and there, the Lord says, this is it. And I said, you know, ma'am, I'll pay for your groceries. And I gave the woman my debit card. She swiped it and it was declined. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I just wanted to see if you're still listening. <laughs> And after paying for the groceries, the woman at the counter, the, the people behind me, the person there, they all just were like, why would you ever do such a thing? And I said, it's because of the love of Jesus Christ. I said, if this was my mom, I'd wish somebody would do it for her, but I'm doing it simply because Christ would have me to do it and because he loves her even more than I do. And I don't know how it affected things. I then went and helped her bag up her groceries and take it out to her car. And she said, can I get you? I said, no, you don't have to pay me back. You don't have to do anything. Do something kind for someone else simply because God says it's better to give than to receive and that God loves you so much that he gave his only son for you. And whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. I don't know whatever happened to her after that, but that moment was an appointment with God and that sensitivity to the Spirit. As Charles Stanley went on to say, our focus must be tightly on God and His plans, purpose, and principles. We are walking closely with the Spirit. Discernment comes naturally and quickly. Discernment is critical if we are to sidestep the traps that the devil has set for us. In fact, discernment is the key to our avoiding many of life's troubles and trials.